Okay, returning to the topic of speech with which this essay, Variations on the Standard Treatment, begins. It also ends there, starting around page 291. At the top there you see Lacan ask, what is speech? Well, one thing we know about speech, and this is going to be a key theme in what he's developing here, is that it is intersubjective. As we said at the start of this, and as Lacan suggested as well, that speech is addressed, and addressed to an other. And the question then becomes, what is the relationship that speech establishes with this other? And the other, in listening, is communicating at the same time. If you're talking to somebody, and they're listening, they are inevitably doing things that are communicating to you that they are listening. Maybe they're nodding. Maybe they're focused on you with their eyes. These are all ways that speech or symbolic action is moving in a two-way street. Just because you're the one talking doesn't mean that it's a one-way street. Listening is a very active enterprise. There are ways to tell people that you're not listening to them, like breaking eye contact with them, like fidgeting, like checking your watch, checking your phone, whatever the case may be. These are all ways that you communicate to them that you're not listening just as there are ways that you can communicate to them that you are. So speech is going to be an intersubjective thing. Now let's hear what Lacan means by this. On 291, third full paragraph, it is thus an act, and as such, it presupposes a subject. But it is not enough to say that in this act, the subject presupposes another subject. For it is rather that he establishes himself here by being the other, but in a paradoxical unity of the one and the other by means of which, as I showed earlier, the one defers to the other in order to become identical to himself. Pretty wordy, pretty wonky, but it's the first approach at intersubjectivity. Lacan's not going to develop this. We can thus say that speech, continues on page 291, manifests itself as a communication in which the subject, expecting the other to render his message true, proffers his message in an inverted form, and in which this message transforms him by announcing that he is the same. Let's bear with this. As is seen in any promise made, in which the declarations, you are my wife and you are my master, signify I am your husband and I am your disciple. So if you tell someone that you are their wife, there's a reciprocal utterance, an inverted form in which the truth of that utterance presupposes that they also have a certain relationship to you. If it's a heteronormative scene, it would also presume the response, and I am your husband. That's what he's getting at here. Um, the same with you are my master, I am your disciple. If someone says you are my teacher, the inverted expression that I don't need to say is, and you are my student. It's implied. A reciprocal relationship between the two people is implied in a statement like that. This is what Lacan elsewhere is going to define as full speech. In part, there are other ways that he defines full speech differently that we're going to get to now. Speech thus seems to be an all the more true instance of speech true speech, the less its truth is based on what is known as its correspondence to the thing. So here we're not looking at an understanding of speech that is dealing with 
references in the world, in reality. We're looking at um, speech, the test of which is not its correspondence to stuff in the world, but its truthfulness relative to the speaker and the person addressed. True speech is thus paradoxically opposed to true discourse, their truth being distinguished by the fact that true speech constitutes the recognition by the subjects of their beings insofar as they are invested in them. So true speech has to do with the intersubjective relationships between people that are constituted and maintained and revised through speech, while true discourse is constituted by knowledge of reality insofar as the subject targets reality and objects. So true speech has to do with intersubjectivity and true knowledge has to do with the objective world, the world as it's thrown out there, objectary, thrown out into the environment, it has to do with stuff. But each of the truths distinguished here is altered when it crosses the path of the other truth. So true speech has to do with a recognition of your relationship to others. And true discourse has to do with the knowledge of reality. That's the distinction that he's being that he's drawing here. Move down a little bit more to the paragraph that begins, but. But true speech, questioning true discourse as to what it signifies, will find that one signification always refers to another signification in true discourse. No thing being able to be shown other than by a sign and will thus make true discourse seem to be doomed to error. So true discourse presumes that a signifier can have a referent in the world. I say cat, and you can point at that thing and be like, oh, there it is over there, the furry thing. But Lacan here is pointing out to the way that signifiers point not to stuff, but to other signifiers. The way we've discussed when you look up cat in the dictionary, you see furry, four-legged, other words pop up in the dictionary definition. And you have to understand the meaning of those words, which in turn have words attached to them, in order to understand the meaning of cat. So you have this web of signifiers that Lacan thinks is more important than the, quote, web of reference that true discourse would try and put forward. And that's why he says that it would prove that true discourse is doomed to error, because in the end, signifiers don't point to stuff. They point to other signifiers because they operate in a field known as language. And language is a differential system where in order to understand one element, you have to understand another element, which in turn requires you to understand another element and another element and another element. Again, a good example of this is a dictionary. So Lacan wants to kind of demote true discourse and elevate, especially for these purposes, which is a very technical document about how to do analysis, true speech. Well, let's see how he does this here. How in navigating between the, ah, mm-hmm, which one will you err on the side of? Of this interaccusation of speech, could the in intermediate discourse, that in which the subject and his design to get himself recognized, there's true speech, addresses speech to the other while taking into account what he knows of his being as given, there's true discourse. So this intermediate discourse that Lacan is putting forth here, I wouldn't focus too much on it, but it's this combination of true speech and true discourse. True speech because it's about recognition of oneself addressed to another and working that out. Um, and then also um, about knowledge. 
of, of themselves. On 293, he continues this theme of true speech. It always operates by grounding the subject's speech in its mediation by another subject. And that's a really important element here. True speech always involves another subject, a listener, somebody with whom you're interacting. And that speech is always mediated through the listening and interpretation of another. Here we're talking about a dialectic of recognition, Lacan goes on to specify. Now, this is an important thing for us to note, and we can point it out in a really simple example. True speech always operates by grounding the subject's speech in its mediation by another subject. The importance of interpretation and the way that the other comes first here, again, becomes a theme. When you think about the expression, I mean, what I meant to say, that's not what I meant. I mean, I mean, these expressions we use all the time. The reason why we have a word or a discourse particle or a phrase like I mean is because we're constantly trying to disprove the truth of spoken discourse and human communication, which is that the meaning of our actions, whether they are speech or deed, is determined not by us and our intentions, but by how our actions have been received by others. In other words, you can mean to be as nice as possible, but if what you say hurts somebody's feelings, what is the true meaning of your speech? Is it niceness or meanness? The answer is meanness. It doesn't matter what you intended. It's not the thought that counts. It is the effect of that thought when put into speech or deed. It's how that thought was received when it found expression. So we have a phrase like, I mean what I meant to say, because we're constantly trying to reclaim the authority of truth and interpretation from our addressees, from others, and say, no, 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 don't focus on the effects of my discourse, focus on what I intended to say. And the reason why we have that expression is because the truth of human communication is that meaning is more dependent on the audience than it is on the speaker. It's how our words are felt and interpreted by others that determine their meaning more than any conscious intent that we might put into them. And that's partly what Lacan is getting at here. The truth of one's speech is always grounded in another subject, in the interpretation of, in this case, an analyst. And that's where we're going to turn next. Welcome back. We're here wrapping up variations on the standard treatment. On page 293, we were just talking about true speech and how it is grounded in another. This other in question is the analyst. Lacan is here working it toward the top of 293 with the paragraph. It is to this extent, to the extent, that the analyst manages to silence the intermediate discourse in himself in order to open himself up to the chain of true speech that he can interpolate his revelatory interpretation. So part of the task of analysis is to quiet, silence the intermediate discourse in oneself in order to be open to the patient or the analyzant's true speech. That is not easy, but it does connect with the earlier theme we discussed of playing dead, playing dumb, and embracing the performance of ignorance. 
whether you feel it or not, playing dumb and dead is important because that silencing of oneself as a knowledge-seeking ego is important somehow for allowing the truth of the analyzant speech to be revealed. Let's see how this unfolds. Moving forward from 293, the next important passage along these lines pops up on 297. We're about four pages from the end of this essay. Indeed, the analyst cannot follow this path unless he recognizes his own, in his own knowledge, the symptom of his own ignorance. So here at the top in this paragraph that begins, indeed, we're talking about recognizing one's knowledge, in one's knowledge, symptoms of one's own ignorance. The analyst has to do this kind of work. This is part of what it would mean to become a psychoanalyst. In the properly analytic sense that the symptom is the return of the repressed in a compromise formation, and that repression here as elsewhere constitutes the censorship of truth. So again, what we're getting at here is truth. And part of what needs to happen is to recognize in one's field of knowledge symptoms of one's own ignorance. In the field of knowledge, we recognize its limits, the limits of our own knowledge, symptoms of our own ignorance, even in the midst of knowing, conscious, waking, thoroughly intentful discourse. Now, this could be regular ego-driven speech, empty speech, Lacan sometimes calls it, that suddenly would be shot through with a stutter or a stammer or a Freudian slip of some kind. That might be a symptom of some part of you as a speaker of which you are ignorant. An unconscious agent just spoke through your discourse and caused your speech to stammer. That would be an example of this. That would be the truth finding expression through the censorship of a highly eloquent, artfully wrought, carefully overdetermined ego trying to control and remain consistent. All the things that in psychoanalysis, the analyst asks the patient or the analyst and to ignore. Don't try and be coherent, just say whatever comes to mind and don't stop talking, just keep going. The analyst has a role to play in this. Finding in their own knowledge, the symptom of their own ignorance. Going down a little bit more in 297. Lacan at the end of this paragraph that begins people talks about every training analysis this is when you're training to become a psychoanalyst, is obliged to analyze the reasons why the candidate chose the career of an analyst. So part of what you would have to acknowledge to become a psychoanalyst is you'd have to get at the question of why. What is it about you that wanted to become an analyst? Why were you so compelled by this? The positive fruit of the revelation of ignorance is non-knowledge, which is not a negation of knowledge, but rather its most elaborate form. This is key. Ignorance is not the negation of knowledge. It is on the contrary, knowledge's most elaborate form. Now it's tempting here to connect ignorance to the unconscious because there are things of which you are unaware. You don't remember all the details of that traumatic event that happened to you 20 years ago, but there's a part of you that does remember it. And that part of you is the unconscious. Now, just because your ego doesn't want to think about that and resists all attempts by the unconscious to speak the truth of that horrible event, it doesn't mean it's not there. 
you are ignorant of it as an ego. As an ego, you are ignorant of that experience. But that doesn't mean that it is a negation of knowledge. It's not the opposite of knowledge, that ignorance. In fact, it's its most elaborate form. The field of ignorance, the field of which you are unaware, is the most elaborate form of knowledge out there. Now that's kind of interesting. That's a weird way to put this. The candidate's training cannot be completed without some action on the part of the master or masters who train him in this non-knowledge. One must be trained in the field of non-knowledge, which is ignorance. Trained in the field of ignorance. Expertise, acute awareness of how ignorance operates. Think about all the implications of this statement. The stake here, again, Lacan reminds us in the middle of page 298, is in accordance with the laws of speech, it is in the analyst as another subject, as other that the subject finds his own identity. So the goal here again is for the analyst to play a certain part in order to help the patient or the analyzant find their own identity. And this is a very communicative experience. The experience of analysis is a communicative experience. Communication coming from the word meaning to share, not to unite, not union. It's the munis in communication, meaning to share something with another person, this intersubjective field, something between. Inter means between. Subjectivity is something that we share with others. It's always between us and others that we reside. On 299, last few paragraphs of this essay, Lacan really wants to drive home this point about non-knowledge. The paragraph begins, the fact is that psychoanalysis, since it progresses essentially in non-knowledge, is tied to, and then he goes through and lists all the other fields that would be extremely important for understanding psychoanalysis. And yet at the same time, look at this, the non-knowledge in question would derive and deal with mathematics, linguistic research, history, symbolology, game theory, set theory, which is a big one for Lacan. All of these other fields of knowledge, complex fields of knowledge, all culminate in the final words of this essay. Learned ignorance the pathway of a learned ignorance, or you might refer to this as a learned ignorance. You've learned how to be ignorant. And again, the notion of ignorance here is not the negation of knowledge, but a very elaborate form of non-knowledge. Non-knowledge is the origin and birthplace of truth. Knowledge is not the same as truth. Knowledge, again, has to do with the ego, with consciousness, with intent. Non-knowledge has to do with the unconscious, with truth. Not intent, but effect instead. 
Ignorance is not non-knowledge in the sense of a negation of knowledge, but rather non-knowledge as knowledge's and ignorance's most elaborate form. Remember that passage on 297. The positive fruit of the revelation of ignorance is non-knowledge, which is not a negation of knowledge, but rather its most elaborate form. To be learned in the field of non-knowledge. Final question for this essay is right at the center of it. What is the ultimate absolute field of non-knowledge? The field of human experience where the human experience itself comes to an end, where knowledge can pass no further, where egos, weak, strong, and otherwise all pass. It's death. The field of non-knowledge, ignorance's most elaborate form, knowledge's most elaborate form, is the field of death. And so part of what this learned ignorance yields at the level of analytic experience, again, is an analyst who knows how to play dead, which is to say they're good at performing beyond the field of knowledge. And in doing so, pointing the analyzan towards a field of truth that carries them not only to the end of their life, but also points right back to the beginning, to that feeling of impotence, that touch of death that Lacan referred to as the fragmented body. This is part of what's at stake here. And as you blast forward into Lacan's work and you get into Seminar 17 and the four discourses of psychoanalysis, you can see in the discourse of the analyst, in the bottom left-hand quadrant, S2, which is a kind of knowledge, but it occupies a field of ignorance. The truth of the analyst's position is that their knowledge has been shoved into or gleaned from the field of non-knowledge, of ignorance. This is partly how we can read the discourse of the analyst. Another more simple way is to just say they hide their knowledge by playing dumb, by playing dead. And this is the opportunity structure in which the empty speech of a patient or an analyzand can take on full proportions, in which an empty speech can become true. And the truth here, again, has nothing to do with the external world. It has to do with the subject's relationship to themselves. True, full speech in Lacanian psychoanalysis is speech in which the subject resubjectivizes their past, transforming their past into their history by owning it, by coming to terms with all the things that have happened to them, even and especially the worst things, and recognizing that had those things not occurred, they wouldn't be the person they are today. And they own that past. They have a stake in it. They understand their role in the co-maintenance of that past. That past is as intersubjective as the present in which they transform it into their history. These are some of the big themes that are coming out of Lacan's work in the 1950s. And this essay, Variations on the Standard Treatment, 
is a great place to start tracing them further.